gotten to weeks watching as everything unfolds John's so intentional with how he develops these things and I think it's a, a very appropriate for us to understand and slow down and pay attention to how he's bringing and weaving all of these themes together here at the end things that he introduced very early on in his gospel themes like light and dark and, and the sun coming into the world God becoming flesh and dwelling among us so much of that is coming again here at the end as he brings all of those back together and so we have to slow down and pay attention to some of those things. Now, if you remember where we've been up to this point is after the resurrection, Jesus has been appearing to many different people. Now, the first indication that there was a resurrection was these ladies that went to anoint Jesus's body in his burial. Because remember, he had such a hasty burial. They want to make sure he was buried before sun went down. And so everything was done very rushed. And then the next couple of days were Sabbath days. So um, no one could do anything. And now they had the opportunity to go and finish maybe what would have been, they would have thought rushed. They probably didn't even know what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had actually done. So they were like any good women, they will follow up the work of men to make sure that it's done the right way. And so they were going to the grave early that morning, and of course they find that it's empty. Their first thought is grave robbers, or Pilate's changed his mind, and they're not going to let him be buried, or whatever it may be. And so they run back, and they tell everybody else, hey, they've taken his body. Well, then Peter and John run to the tomb, not probably running thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive. That was probably the furthest thing from their mind. They were probably thinking, I'm going to beat whoever, I'm going to beat up whoever messed with that body or messed with that tomb. And so they run there and they find the tomb empty, just like the woman, women had said, or opened. And then they looked inside and they saw something a little more than the women did, at least as far as the description that we're giving. And they saw in there the burial cloth the way it was. And, and so Peter goes in and he looks at it. And he sees it and John sees and something about what John saw made him believe. And I think it's very interesting because John in this whole gospel narrative is the first person to believe without seeing the body. Okay. He's the first person, really the only one of the disciples that we see or are told of that believe without seeing Jesus. But what happens from that point on is they run back. They give testimony of this. Well, Mary Magdalene probably missed them. That she was probably already on her way or, or she was somewhere else. Or maybe they went somewhere else before they went back to where she was. Anyway, somehow she goes back without knowing what they have seen. She goes and she's looking for the body and she's disturbed that it's not there. She sees someone that's inside the tomb. She doesn't know their angels. She says, where have you put him? Um, and, and of course, they direct her, or maybe they made a motion for her to turn around or whatever, well, Jesus is standing there. And she's like, you know, if you're the gardener or if you know where they put him, please let me know. I'll make sure that he's put back. And then he says her name and reveals himself to her. And so this is this incredible moment. So each moment, each little entity that is given to us in the gospel paints this newer picture, bigger picture of Jesus <clears throat> revealing himself to her. And really people recognizing him for who he is. Because the first declaration was, I believe. The next declaration is, my rabbi. And of course, in our declaration, which Brad just read, is my Lord and my God. So you see even this progression of what titles they're attributing to Jesus, this resurrected Jesus. So again, I think John wants us to understand all that's happening here. And again, when you see this passage, you know that he's telling us stuff that happened over a week's time. It tells us in this passage, eight days later. So this is unfolding over time after the resurrection. Now, there's a lot of powerful themes here. 
And Thomas is one who is focused in on at this point. Now, to set the context, let's remember that Jesus just last week appeared to, in a locked room again, to all the disciples who were gathered together there. They were gathered together in fear of the Jews. They were behind locked doors. All the lights were turned off because they didn't want to be seen or notice, be noticed by anyone because they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. Well, Jesus shows up in the middle of that, lar- that dark room. Again, the themes early on in John showing up again. The light, the darkness has seen a great light. So again, this dark room behind locked doors, a picture of their hearts. The light comes into it. The darkness has seen a great light. And of course, this time he reveals himself to them. They see the scars. They know that it's Jesus and, and they believe, okay? Well, now it carries over into this guy by the name of Thomas because apparently Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. So we see, number one, that at the crucifixion, there was a scattering of the disciples. They went in all different directions. And now after the resurrection, what you see is this recongregation of the disciples. They're starting to come back together slowly and surely, but there are still some that are on the outskirts. And so John is telling us how they eventually come back all together before the church really takes off and and this becomes a movement like wildfire, okay? So the person that we're introduced next who wasn't there at the first appearing is the guy by the name of Thomas. We all know him as Doubting Thomas, yes. Doubting Thomas, this is, I mean, this guy has gotten this label so bad that if you go look up in a thesaurus, skeptic, one of the words next to it will be doubting Thomas, okay? Like it's, it's not even like a, a, it's not a Christian thesaurus. It's just a regular thesaurus. Like it's become that common that even people who aren't even Christians call people who don't believe things doubting Thomases. Now, I want you to know that there's nowhere in scripture where they give him the label doubting Thomas, okay? Now, if, if that were true, We'd have to give all of them labels. It would be doubting Peter. It would have to be doubting Mary Magdalene. It had to be doubting Andrew because none of them believed at the beginning. It wasn't until Jesus revealed himself and showed himself to her. Maybe John is the only one who gets that. And remember, John writes this, so he's probably writing it favorable to himself as well. I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm sure he's telling us the truth. But when you get into this passage and you see this guy by the name of Thomas, he becomes a clear picture of people who are on the outside of fellowship. So look at what it says there in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, in other words, remember when we had 12? Remember when we were all together with Jesus? Do you remember when things were normal? Do you remember what it's like before the pandemic? You know, when things were normal and now everything is scattered. Okay, the 12, now one of them's dead. Judas has taken his own life. Now, because of the crucifixion, they've been scattered. And one of the ones who's been scattered is this guy. He was a part of the original 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, John doesn't tell us why he wasn't with them. And that's very unclear from the passage. And so I'm speculating a little bit here, but I'm reading between the lines because they are gathered together in fear is what we were told last week. Uh, We know that they were scared of the Jews. They were scared of the same fate coming to them that they saw given to Jesus. And so we know that these people were gone all over the place and they were fearful for their lives. Um, We do know all the events that have led up to this moment. We know that many of the disciples are now beginning to come back together, although under this, this banner of fear. 
Um, but the truth that we do know about humans, even though we don't know exactly what's happening here, is we know that all humans deal with emotions differently, don't we? Um, some of us deal with them out loud. We just will vomit all over the place and let everybody hear it if they want to hear it. And we, we don't mind at all because we're just going to share whatever's going on in our lives. And, and some of the, there's things about those people we can appreciate. And there's some things about those people that get on our nerves sometimes, right? Okay, we're just being honest here today. This is a transparent place. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is the people who never share anything. And they bottle everything up. They never show any emotion. And they keep everything to themselves. Now, they, pro they still have to process those emotions. So when do they do it? How do they do it? Well, a lot of times, those people are the people that isolate themselves. Those are the people who withdraw from community. They withdraw from small groups. They withdraw from the church. They, they withdraw from their family. They withdraw from their friends, depending on what the situation is and what it is that they're going through. And they begin to isolate, isolate, isolate. I'm that kind of person. I, I, I have to be careful of that because I can do that. I, I did a study for my last degree. One of the research that I did was to look at pastors who had been in churches for long periods of time to see how they dealt with stress. Well, in studying and researching the, the data that had been collected up to that point before I did my actual research, one thing jumped out of me that I read that, I, you know, of all the things I read, and I had to read tons and tons of books, one of these things that just jumped out and it burned in my mind, I never forgot it. And it was one that said that many of these pastors who go through burnout and ultimately sometimes will end up in either moral failure or something like that, that many of them, when things got really tough, they withdrew from all their relationships. They withdrew from their staff. They withdrew from their congregation. And oftentimes, they would even withdraw within their own families. And they isolated themselves. And it, they made a statement in the, the um, book that I was reading that just stuck with me. And it said, it is fascinating that these men, when they would most benefit from these relationships would withdraw themselves and rob themselves of them. And I thought, wow, that, that is so true. Like the times that I need it the most is the times that I will pull away from it. The times that I need the encouragement, the accountability, the times that I need someone to just say, hey, what's wrong? Are you okay? And, and, and to have someone speaking to my is the time when I'm going to wall myself off and I'm going to withdraw. And I don't know this for a fact, but I kind of get the idea that that might be who Thomas is. Maybe with the events that unfolded, Thomas has just withdrawn. All it says is that he was not with the other disciples. And it doesn't say that he was with anyone else. So that makes me believe that Thomas had isolated himself. Thomas went to whatever that place was that he likes to go, whether it's beside a brook or in a cave or out in the wilderness or up on a mountainside, whatever it may be. Maybe he just went fishing. Maybe he was out on a boat. Who knows? But he went and he was probably beginning to process all of these things that were taking place. Now, I've introduced you to this term, uh, awfulizer, right? I've talked about this before. And last week, I introduced the other campus to that. Uh, but I, I keep have, I have this growing definition. And by, by the time I die, I'm going to have a perfect definition, and it's going to make it into, right now, it's only in the authorized hysterian dictionary, but it'll make it into an official one eventually. Awfulizers are people who focus on the negative, even if it means they have to ignore the positive. Do you ever know anybody like that? They so focus on the negative that to do so, to put that much emphasis on the negative,
make an effort to ignore the positive. That's when you have a bad situation and someone says, well, you know, look on the bright side. The grass is always greener on the other side. And then that's when they say, yeah, but it has to be mowed more often. You know, they're, they're always going to find something negative about it. They're always going to find something wrong with whatever it is that you've presented to them. And these are awfulizers. Now, here's the thing. Most awfulizers, yeah, it's a part of their character to a degree. But let me just tell you something. When they begin to isolate themselves, it gets really, really ugly. And they begin to convince themselves of things that aren't even true. They begin to assign motives to other people that haven't checked on them or that haven't come to them. Now, remember, they've isolated themselves. They, most of the time, have made the choice to do this themselves. But then what happens is they start blaming other people. And they say, they don't love me. They don't care about me. I'm better off without them. And they start selling themselves these lies. And the longer they're apart, the more negative the thinking becomes. We, we're walking through a pandemic right now. You know what happened? It scattered our church. And I'm not just talking about our local congregation. I'm talking about the church as a whole. It really has. It scattered everyone. And just now, many of you are beginning to come back and beginning to show back up in this place. But, you know, my fear, I was talking to someone right before the service. My fear is that there are many that will never come back that this has served for them this point of isolation where in their isolation, because maybe they're doing it because they have health concerns and, and, it's, and it's valid, many of them, they don't have health concerns. It's just a fear that they live in. And then many of them, it's just a good excuse not to do something that they used to do because they didn't really want to do it to begin with, and now they have a reason not to do it. And then what happens is other habits begin to take that place. Whatever it is, the isolation begins to separate them. Let me tell you something. Even though it is age-old wisdom, what it says in the book of Hebrews is so key. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And just let me tell you, Zoom is not assembling, okay? assembly is when you come together in the physical. Now, again, I'm not judging people who have health concerns and they're not here, but what, what I want to say to you that are watching online is you better be careful that you don't get in that isolation mentality. Make sure that you're still making connections. Make sure that the enemy's not putting negative thoughts because what happens to a lot of people, and I've heard it, is nobody cares about me. Nobody's checked on me. And the thing is, and I'm not being judgmental again, but if you reverse that, the truth is that we, we've all been that way. I mean, how many times have we been here and not noticed people who weren't here anymore and have never gone and checked on them? So the reality is part of that is our human nature. It's not an excuse. We should all be aware of who's not here, and we should all be cognizant of that, and we should all be concerned about those who are. But life happens, and life gets in the way, and we get distracted. The thing is, we can't begin to assign character flaws to people just because our needs aren't getting met from our perspective. We have to go back to the reality of what does the scripture say? The scripture says there's something vital about Christian community that feeds the soul, that keeps us on the straight and narrow, that keeps that stinking thinking, that keeps the awfulizing from happening in our brains because we are always coming to the truth. We are being confronted with the reality of truth. We are being pushed towards our relationship with God, reminded of where our power comes from, reminded of the conviction power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, reminding ourselves of how valuable the word is to us. And so it keeps bringing us back to that reality, and it keeps ridding us of our excuses that we love to offer. 
Because it comes down to, it's about our relationship with God, and God commands us to value Christian community. And so I think that what's happening here is so applicable to where we are as a church. And the thing that we have to be, to be careful of is, who are those people who are on the outside now that maybe you've noticed that haven't been here in a while? Maybe what you could do, the most greatest application you can take from this, before we even move on to the deeper theological aspects of this, is who could you check on today? Who's not here that you've noticed that you really don't know what happened to them? You don't know why they're not around anymore. Maybe that's your prompting to say, go out and get them. Because you know what's amazing in this passage? Look what happens next. Verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry. That's another passage I was going to share with you. Um, I'll come back to that, though. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So stop right there. Thomas was not with them. Thomas has been isolated, but apparently they knew where to go get Thomas. You know, it's kind of like when I go somewhere, everybody knows where I am. And it's not a bar or anything like that. But, you know, it's kind of like that place of reflection, that place where you go, where you know that's what that guy's going to be doing. For some of you, it's the golf course. They know when you go and do your thinking, that's where you're going to be, the golf course. Some of you, it's your shop outside. It's your woodworking shop. It's where you go work on your car, maybe a little automotive little uh, joint that you got set up in your garage that your wife hates because it's got so much junk in it. Um, you know where that place is for you. Women, you know where that place is for you. There's this place that we love to go to be and whatever that was, probably Thomas had one of those and they knew where Thomas would be. They go to him and they say, listen, we have seen the Lord. Why did they do that? Well, remember what happened to them. Jesus showed up in that place. He breathed on them. They had the breath of God. They had this renewed spirit, this renewed heart, the giving of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture foreshadowing of what was coming on Pentecost in a more permanent fashion. But yet he commissioned them to be the witnesses. And you know what's amazing? They start with being a witness to their own. Like, who are we going to start witnessing to? Well, let's find the ones who aren't here, and let's start with them. And apparently they went and found Thomas, and they said, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. Jesus is alive. He's real. He's in the body. He's resurrected from the dead. He's not, I'm telling you, it's not a ghost. I'm telling you what I saw. I saw him. I heard him. And, and he's calling us and he's commissioning us. And this thing's not over, Thomas. It's just getting started from what he was telling us. Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, what does he say? I will never believe. I will never believe. Now, this is the guy who, and we'll jump back to that verse, chapter 11, verse 16. This is Thomas after Jesus said, hey, uh, let's go and see the family of Lazarus because Lazarus has died. And the Spirit is prompting me. We need to go back to Judea. We need to go back there, and we need to be a part of, of what's happening there. And this is Thomas's response as they're all talking about this. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, again, this is the kind of personality I think Thomas has. I don't think he's being sarcastic here. I think he means let us go and die with him. 
But I also want you to know this is his awfulizing coming out too. It's always the most negative that it could possibly be. Like, let's go, but we're all going to die. Just want you to know, we're all going to die, but let's go die with him, okay? I mean, this is kind of his, it's his passion. He's committed to Christ. He believes, but at the same time, his thinking, thinking can get in the way sometimes. That's a picture of who he is. And now we see it again. They've come to him and said, we've seen him. He's alive. I will never believe until I see, and I touch, and I know. So when the other disciples go and proclaim to Thomas this truth, what does he immediately do? He demands proof. Uh, What this really means in a very subtle way is that Thomas has become his own God. Because here's the thing. The person in charge is the one who makes the demands. Do you know that? If you say to God, I'll never believe you until you do this, this, or this, guess who's in charge? You are. You're setting the demands. You're saying, hey, I will do this if you do this first. Now, what you're going to see is a reversal of that. Thomas is going to get to the end, and he's not going to make the demands anymore, and he attributes who Jesus really is to him in this title of God. And it's a powerful declaration that he makes as well. But notice at this point, he hasn't gotten there yet. He hasn't seen Jesus. He isn't going to believe until he sees and he touches these things. Now, notice that it seems from this passage that, again, the disciples have been going out and beginning that proclamation that Jesus has given to them, the the duty that he's given to him last week. So from Thomas's response, it would seem that unless he can feel Jesus' scarred hands, unless he can feel his wounded side, how can he be certain that all of these other people haven't just seen a ghost or made something up in their minds in their delirious state of non-sleep and fear, they've seen something that actually isn't real. So he's selling himself all the awfulizing that he can of like, there's no way this could be true. This is what they've seen. These people are crazy. They're delirious. They've seen things. This isn't true. There's no way that this can be true. Have you ever known somebody who's walked down that road? Family member or friend who, there's there's no way this Jesus thing can be true. There's no way that somebody died. There's no way that he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, why wouldn't he have shown himself over the past 2,000 years? Um, Why wouldn't he show himself to me? I'll believe if he just shows up. Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever been that person? (laughs) Have you ever been that person saying, God, if you just do this, this, and this, I'll believe If you do this, this, and this, I will be committed to you. Huh. So, from Thomas's response, what we see is that heart that has become hardened through the process of isolation. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked down that road. I have. Uh, it happened when I was in seminary. Now, many of you don't know this about me, but before I was going to be a pastor, I was going to be a weatherman. Yeah, the subtle laughter goes throughout the room. Uh, but I really was. That's, that's what I was going to be. I was going to be a meteorologist. And I was already studying. Matter of fact, back when they printed papers, when I was younger, they used to print these papers that they would throw in your yard and you would read them, children. Um, and, and there was this whole article about 
me and this meteorology class that had started at the University of Mobile and how I had taken this class and I was getting broadcast journalism and then I had already applied to the AMS and I was going to, going to be this meteorologist. And it tied this whole feature of why I loved weather and how I became interested in it and all that kind of thing. And that's what I was going to be. I was going to be a meteorologist. Okay? And I remember very definitively when God called me and I knew that God had called me and, and I left all of that behind. I said, you know what? That's not it. I was finishing school. I was like, I'm not going to get another degree. So I didn't go and get theology. I went and finished my broadcast journalism because I thought I'm going to get enough theology in seminary that I don't need extra. So I said, I'm going to finish this degree and I'm going to move on. That's what I did. And I went to Southwestern in Fort Worth, Texas. Now in that process, I went through isolation. I was away from my family. I had a girl that I dated for five years. And after being there for six months, it ended. I was all alone. I didn't have any friends, any family at all there. Everybody in seminary is like 35 with eight kids. I was single, okay? I was like 25 years old. I had nothing there, no friends or anything. So this isolation just really began to brew in me. And I remember, without telling you all the stories, it came to the point where I was in the library at Southwestern, and I was going through this very difficult project. I always had this bad thinking that was going through my head. And I remember sitting there at the table. I could tell you exactly where it was in that library. And I was sitting there going, I'm, I'm not sure any of this is real. And I felt like the biggest fake in the world because I was like sitting there getting a degree. I've told people I'm called in the ministry, that God called me himself. And here I am questioning the reality of God. And I was like, you know, there's, there's so much inconsistency. These things I learn, and I've learned about Scripture, and I've learned about people, and I've learned about church history, and it just causes questions in my mind. And I just, I really got in this cycle of doubt, of doubt, of doubt. And I remember sitting there going, you know what? It's not too late. I, could, I can still get that degree, and I could be a weatherman. And I'm telling you, it's somewhat humorous. And I'm not saying God spoke to me audibly or anything like that, but... At the very least, he stuck this thought into my head, and this is exactly how it went. So you're telling me that my inconsistency is driving you to go study weather for the rest of your life. And I just started laughing out loud in the library, okay, before LOL was ever a thing. I mean, I was sitting there, and I was just, I mean, people probably wonder what in the world I was laughing, but that thought literally came to my head, I'm going to abandon this to go pursue something that is the most inconsistent thing that you could possibly give your life to. And, and, and it was funny to me, and it was really like this moment, even though it wasn't this deep theological moment, it wasn't something like scripture came to mind, but it was the thing that said, you know what, I got enough right now, I can take one more step. And that one more step became another and another and another until God walked me through that time of crisis in my life. And you want me to tell you what really helped me was involving myself with other people and hearing their own fears and hearing the trouble that they had and hearing their own doubts and how God had helped them and dealt with that. And it gave me this new revived confidence that I had to make it through the rest of cemetery. I mean, seminary. Okay? And, and so that began the process of really understanding and solidifying the call of God on my life. And I want you to know that it's about this beautiful picture of Christian community. How long had Thomas been away? I don't know. But it tells us there that eight days later, after he makes this declaration, I'll never believe, eight days passed before 
anything else happen. Look how it starts in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I am completely speculating at this point, but let me just show you some things that jump out at me as very odd in this verse. These are the people that eight days ago received the Holy Spirit and were commissioned to go. And they're back behind locked doors in a room again. And it makes me wonder, was Thomas beginning to have an influence on them? Was he like, gosh, y'all are crazy. Y'all have lost your minds. Y'all did not see Jesus. I'm telling you, I'll tell you what I did see. I saw the Jews out there and they're asking questions about us. I talked to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so and somebody else. And they said that we're next. And all of a sudden, maybe the joy of whatever happened, they, I don't know what it is. I don't know what happened, but something drove them back to being behind locked doors, which is a beautiful picture of how patient and gracious Jesus is. Because for a second time, he's going to appear to them behind these locked doors. And he says, peace be with you. Another statement here I think is pretty cool is the eight days. Now, there's a lot of theological terms to that. I don't have time to un unpack all that, but it's a, definitely a picture of new creation uh, that we've talked about over and over again. But let me just tell you the humorous side of it, and that is, okay, let me give you my example from my own life. So my wife came to me one time, and she says, we're going to meet the principal at the kid's school. And I was like, oh my gosh, are they in trouble? And I said, what's happened? She's like, no, they're not in trouble. I was like, well, did he like request us to come in? Like he wants to talk to us? She goes, no, I, I set up the appointment. So I'm not going. So why, why, why am I going to bother that man? He's got so many things to do. The last thing he wants to do is somebody come in with no questions and no problems with their kids, okay? He does not want us to come in there. And she goes, no, he invited us. He said at that meeting that if anybody has an open door policy, I said, he didn't mean it. I say that kind of stuff all the time. He's just being nice and saying that. Well, he said it, we're going. I said, listen, I am not going. Eight days later, I'm sitting at the principal's office next to my wife, having this conversation. Have you ever had a, had a moment like that, you know, where you're like, I am not. And then eight days later, there you are. I think that's kind of like what's happening here. Because eight days ago, he's like, I will never believe. Never, never, never. I am not going to believe you people are crazy. Eight days later, he's in a locked room. He's telling them they're all crazy. Jesus shows up and says, peace be to you. Same exact declaration. Again, it's not a formality. This is not Jesus presenting a formality. This is a powerful picture of saying, peace I'm giving to you because of these wounds. I can truly offer this to you. It's paid for. It is mine to extend to you, and I extend it to you for a purpose. Peace be with you. Unlock the doors. Take your faith out of hardware in a door and a window and put it in me. Peace be with you. You know what's amazing about this? Is that this passage opens up with Thomas isolated. They go to him and they say, you're not going to believe what we saw. And he looks at them and says, you're right, I don't believe it. But something in them did not just accept that first refusal. And eight days later, he's not isolated, he's with them. They brought him back, even with his doubts. Come in. Just come be a part. Come back and be with us. What a beautiful picture of Christian community. 
that we welcome people with all of their problems and all of their doubts and all of their fears and all of their addictions, come back in and be a part. You know what? God will work out the issues. Come be a part of this community. It reminds me that sometimes we really get this wrong because we think that we are called to evangelize and those who respond to our evangelism, we then disciple them. But the Great Commission says, go into the world and make what? Before you ever baptize anybody, you're making disciples. Discipleship comes before evangelism. Now, sometimes there is a proclamation and someone responds before they ever have the opportunity. That's fine and God can do that. But what we're called to do is to expect that you're first going to have to invest in that person's life before they will ever respond to the gospel. You need to invite them into your community. Where are the lost in this room right now? Where are the ones who have the compassion, who are saying to those doubters out there, I understand you're not going to accept what I, but just come and listen. Come and be a part. You're not going to like what the guy says, but he's good looking. He's up there. I mean, it's like, he's, you know, he's something to look. Just come on into this place and just sit. And, whatever it is we try to use to convince people because we want them to come and hear. It's not that there's anything magic about this place or whoever is speaking. There's something incredibly powerful about the gospel and the spirit of God. And when the people of God are gathered, the spirit of God is present. Jesus is present among them. Did you know that's what scripture says? When we are gathered Jesus is among us. And when the lost and the doubters are there, he presents himself to them and says, peace be with you. What an incredible calling. What a beautiful picture of the ministry that we are called to. What a stark warning of how dangerous it is to be isolated. There are... So many testimonies in this room right now of people who began attending this church before they ever became followers of Christ. They attended, I know at least two, they attended this place as atheists and came to this place as atheists at someone's request, but they were convinced there's no way any of this is true and you're not going to convince me that it is. To hear their testimony about how they came to faith in Jesus, it's powerful. It's powerful. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus tells Thomas to look and touch. And then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And I think it is such a testament to the grace of God that here Jesus accommodates Thomas. Your problem is not what you're seeing or what you don't see. Your problem is you don't believe. Quit disbelieving and believe. Now, that is, listen to me, don't miss this, it's an invitation. Hey, I'm inviting you to set aside your disbelief and to embrace your belief. Now, here's what that assumes, that there's belief somewhere inside of you, that the disbelief is holding back. And I want to tell you, I don't know if this is theological or not, but I think this is true. I think every human being on the face of this earth has belief in them. But it's being smothered by disbelief. And I think what Jesus is saying is, 
set aside all those questions and doubts and let that belief rise to the surface. And of course, that can only be empowered by the Spirit of God. Okay? It's not something we do or we conjure up or we just mentally start setting aside these things. No, I'm going to show you that it's the power of the Spirit. But there is this picture that within us, what is suppressing so much is this disbelief. And that disbelief comes from our sin, our depravity. And it just keeps piling on more and more and more. It's our rebellion. It's our addiction. It's our, our wanting to be our own God. It's the same thing that's been the problem from the very beginning. And Jesus invites Thomas, set those things aside so the belief can come forward. Now, the only way that belief can come forward, the only way that can be set aside is at the invitation of Christ. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, Jesus' wounds are a sign of his presence. This is not an illusion or a vision, but a real person. Thomas does not even need to touch. Thomas has now moved beyond sight to faith. And we see that declaration there in verse 28. So, so what does it mean when it says that Thomas was unbelieving? Because here's the thing. He believed as a disciple, didn't he? I mean, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He even made the statement, let's go with him and let's die with him. Let's be that committed to him. And I don't think he was being sarcastic. I think that even at this point, he wants to believe. Most likely. You know what? That's a great affirmation to how gracious and good God is that he would come to us in a personal way. That sometimes when what other people say to us isn't enough, God understands that position and God shows up in a mighty way and he invites us back into a relationship with him. And that relationship is based on belief. Look how it continues in verse 28. Now notice that nothing in the text has said that Thomas has touched the wounds in Jesus' hands or that he's put his hand anywhere near his side. So without the demand, the demand that he made, the statement was, I will never believe unless I do these things. He hasn't done these things. And here's the statement he makes. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So it seems that seeing was enough. Again, this is a picture, that theme of John, of opening eyes. He opened Mary's eyes. He opened John's eyes. He opened the disciples' eyes. And now he's opened Thomas's eyes to see, to see, to see the truth of who he is. It's interesting. If you go into the Old Testament, did you know my Lord and my God is never used? It's always the Lord God. It's kind of like this distant, I understand who he is. He's bigger, but he's kind of far off. But you know, from this point on, after the resurrection, for the rest of the New Testament, it's always my This revelation has come to Thomas, and it's a beautiful thing. And this title that he gives to Jesus, this is the highest title that you could ascribe to a human, God. So... This, I think, is a fulfillment of John, something John introduced to us early on. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 23, he was talking. And he said that we should all get to the point that, that we all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Uh, Thomas has gotten to this point where he honors the Son as if he is the Father. He honors them in the same way because they are. 
29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I want you to see, I want you to understand what's happened here. God used unbelievers, turned into believers, to reach out to Thomas, the unbeliever. And he brings Thomas, the unbeliever, in. And the unbeliever becomes a believer. And then he commissions them and says, basically, you're going to be a person who goes out. And you're going to give testimony about who I am and what you've seen. And how you became a believer. That's in essence what all that said. That was much more clear, wasn't it? I should put that in there in the ESV. Um, Because that's really what it is. It's showing us over and over again that God uses unbelievers to reach unbelievers. Unbelievers who are divinely converted to understand that they become believers. And then he uses their testimony to reach more unbelievers. Now, here's a beautiful thing. You could very much set Thomas aside and go, I don't know why he doesn't get it. I don't know why. Here's an interesting kind of perspective to this. When Jesus came the first time, Thomas was not there. And what does it say happened? He said, peace, and then he breathed on them, and they received what? Thomas wasn't there. Thomas hasn't received the Holy Spirit, apparently. So it makes sense that he doesn't believe. It makes sense that he doesn't understand. And now it makes sense that he does because God has come to him in the presence. And when Jesus says, peace be to you, I don't know if he breathed. I don't know if Thomas received the Holy Spirit. But what I can tell you is it was not the wounds that convinced Thomas. It was the command of Christ when he said, quit disbelieving and believe. Do you know that's what God has to say to every heart before it can ever be converted? He has to say to that heart, Quit disbelieving and believe. And God empowers us to become new creations. I love this. The word blessed does not simply declare happy those who meet the conditions. It pronounces them accepted by God. Blessed are those who, you know what that means? Accepted by God are those who go through these things because God is ordaining those things. God is commissioning those things. God is allowing growth and the process of the gospel to take hold in our hearts. Peter says as much in his own pastoral letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcomes of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is he saying? That you, without ever seeing Jesus in real life, without ever touching his side or seeing the wounds in his hands, you believe And you know what that belief has turned into? This inexpressible joy. How does that happen? By God. I don't think that John had us in mind when he wrote this. I don't think he was talking about us or had us in mind when he was writing that there would be those people who would not believe. I think he was thinking of people in the first century. But I'll tell you this. When Jesus said this, he did have us in mind. John didn't know that the church was going to last more than a century or probably way less than that. He thought Jesus was going to come back before then. John didn't have that concept. Jesus knew exactly how long it would be. When Jesus utters these words, I want you to know he had us in mind. He had us that would live through the weirdness of 2020 and 
those people still believe, even though they've never seen. I love how another commentator put it. He says, blessed then are those who cannot share Thomas's experience of sight, but who in part, because they read of Thomas's experience, come to share in Thomas's faith. For us, faith comes not by sight, but from what is heard or maybe even read. And what is heard comes by the word, by the declaration of Christ. Indeed, that is why John himself has written these words as he proceeds to make explicit in the next passage, which we'll save for next week. Here's what I want you to know. This is not doubting Thomas. This is believing Thomas. And you know what happens to believing Thomas? Believing Thomas is the one disciple who takes the gospel further than any of the rest of them. From church history, what we know about Thomas is that he had a passion to take the gospel and he took it all the way to India. Do you know how far India is from Jerusalem? This guy who would not believe, I'm never going to believe unless my demands are met, says, my Lord and my God, and he surrenders himself in totality, and he goes to a people who would never be afforded the opportunity to see what he saw and to experience what he did, and he gave his life. And many churches were started, and he ultimately lost his life by being pierced. Oddly enough, and he became a martyr. The doubter is not a doubter. He's a believer. And my question to you is this. I want to leave this for you and your family to discuss today. And your family could be the people that you're in a dorm with or whoever you may go to lunch with after this or whatever it may be. Here it is. Do you really believe in Jesus? And what I mean by that is, are you making demands of him? I'll be more committed if you do this or I'll be more committed if you you do that. And the second thing is this, if you are truly a believer in Jesus, how did you come to believe? What was it that convinced you? What did God use in your life to convince you that he was the Messiah, that you would surrender your life to him? I think that's something beautiful that your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, whoever it may be, they need to hear that from you. What was it that really convinced you? that he was the Messiah. Let's pray together. God, what a beautiful picture of someone who was on the outside who comes back to the inside. May this church be filled with people who were on the outside who have come and experienced something that is real and true and their lives have been transformed. May we never forget that this congregation is not just for believers. It's also for doubters. And that we need to invite people to be in relationship with us and in community with us so that they may learn and we may share and they may be transformed. It's not information that we need, it's transformation. And only you can do that, Holy Spirit. All of our strong will cannot remove one ounce of disbelief. It takes you melting those things away. It takes you, Jesus, to speak to our heart and say, quit disbelieving and believe. And you empower us to understand and to know and to be saved. Thank you for the power of the gospel that has transformed this depraved life. Thank you for a community of believers that have come from the outside in. And we call you our Lord and our King. We put you in right place.
place on the throne of our hearts. And Lord, whenever our hearts and our minds are distracted from that and we want to look to something else, God, may you bring us back to that truth that we understand that you are the only one worth living for. God, may that reality bring peace to our souls and may it set our hearts free. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.